and welcome to another episode of In a Pickle. I am your host, Dave Houghton. In a Pickle is a show dedicated to the less glamorous side of baseball, and that's what we're doing here today, the less glamorous side of baseball. And thank you for coming back for another episode of IEP Radio. Last week, we did Danny Tartable. He was the LA's number one most wanted deadbeat dad after making uh, almost $40 million in uh, in his baseball career. 13, I think, uh, 12, 13 years he played baseball. Um, he owed $276,000 to his children and uh, called the cops on himself accidentally. Yeah. A funny guy there. So far, past episodes this season, we talked about the 1994 baseball strike. That was the first episode of the new season. Then uh, we slid over to uh, Chad Curtis and his creepy life. We talked about Adam Greenberg getting hit in the head and never really making a good comeback. Uh, We talked about Ken Clay. We also touched upon the uh, clubhouse going wild. We talked about um, Tyler Skaggs and how he acquired those drugs. Uh, And of course, uh, we talked about weird baseball injuries, which I absolutely love. Uh, Today isn't really so much of a story that involves um, having it all and losing it. This story kind of talks about how baseball players weren't really paid back in the day. And I know what you're saying right now. The fact is like, you know, there's some guys out there making $32 million a season to pitch a ball every five games. You know, I, I get it. I get it. But back in the day, you know, some of these guys who weren't big names had to go get a second job. Today's story actually involves a player that wasn't on the Yankees during his career, too. So we'll have it at that. How You know, I'm not not just single-handedly going after the Yankees, even though I, I, I don't like them, but that's fine. Thank you, New York, for listening. This story kind of highlights the way that contracts and money in the game of baseball has evolved within the last 50 years. Nowadays, players in the MLB make a league minimum of about $570,000, and that will increase yearly. But back in 1964, league minimum was just under $6,000. Adjusted for inflation, that's about $52,000 in today's money. Not very much for a baseball player once you factor in all those expenses, plus the fact you're only really working half a year. If you adjust six hundred and thirty thousand dollars back in nineteen sixty four to today's money, you will have just under six million dollars. What I'm trying to get at is that if you were just an average player back in the nineteen sixties, it's most likely you would need to get another job after retirement. Let's talk about a player who played in the MLB for twelve years, went to the All Star game twice and won three World Series rings with the team. But he still needed to work once he was done with baseball. Today, we're talking about Johnny Lee Odom, or as many people might know him as, Blue Moon Odom. Johnny Lee Odom grew up in Macon, Georgia. Odom was nicknamed Blue Moon in grade school by a classmate who thought his face was round and resembled a moon. Kids can be so cruel sometimes. Odom went to high school at the Ballard Hudson High School in Macon, Georgia. 
where he would go on to win two consecutive state championships while amassing a 42-2 record. Some notable students from that school include Otis Redding, Little Richard, and Elmore Smith, who played in the NBA for teams like the Bucks, the Lakers, and the Cavs. In fact, if you want to talk about a player who got another job after life in the league, it's Elmore. Elmore Smith owns not only a restaurant, but a barbecue sauce business that he started back in 2006 after years of making sauces for family and friends. His sauces are served at the Elmore Smith's Steakhouse Restaurant located in Cleveland's Rocket Mortgage Field or online. Ah, man. I guess I got to do another one of those free commercials now, huh? (sighs) Elmore Smith All-Natural Barbecue Sauce will have you licking your lips for more. This gluten-free, no-high-fructose corn syrup with all natural ingredients hand-selected by Elmore himself is available at elmoresmithbarbecuesauce.com or by visiting the Elmore Smith Smokehouse Restaurant located at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse in Ohio. Oh, God. I'm just trying to make a living here, folks. Now back to the show. So Blue Moon Odom had a hell of a high school career. So good that he signed with the Kansas City Athletics after graduation. Odom began his pro career with the Birmingham Broncos, a double-A team for the A's back in 1964, but now is actually a double-A team for the White Sox since uh, 1986, I believe. After one season in Birmingham, he received a September call-up to the A's in 1964 and made his major league debut at just 19 years old on September 5th. Odom lasted just two innings against the Yankees, giving up a three-run home run in the first inning to Mickey Mantle and then gave up three more runs in the second before getting the hook and going back down to the minors. Odom spent the entire 1965 season with the Lewiston Broncos of the Northwest League. That team was a short-season single-A minor league team out of Idaho until they actually folded in 1974. During that season, Odom went 11-14 and 14 with an ERA of 4.27, and he led the league in games started at 29 and innings pitched at 198. He only got to make one appearance at the pro level that season, pitching one inning and allowing one earned run against the Washington Senators on September 22nd. Blue Moon would split the 66 season between Kansas City and AA, going 5-for-5 with a 2.49 ERA at the major league level. Then in 67, he began the season in Kansas City, but was demoted in July with a record of 2-4 and in an ERA of 5.15. For that season, he actually went 3-8 and with an ERA of 5.4. Then the A's up and moved to Oakland. During the World Series on October 11, 1967, team owner Charles Finley announced his choice of Oakland over Seattle as the team's new home. A week later, on October 18th in Chicago, owners gave him permission to move the Athletics to Oakland for the 1968 season. This would be the team's third city since 1901. Before this, they moved from Philly to Kansas City. 
According to some reports, AL President Joe Cronin promised Finley that he could move the team after the 67 season as an incentive to sign the new lease with Municipal Stadium. The move came in spite of approval by voters in Jackson County, Missouri of a bond issue for the brand new baseball stadium that would eventually lead to the Royal Stadium, now Kauffman Stadium, to be completed in 1973. Senator Stuart Simonton of Missouri blasted Finley on the floor of the U.S. Senate, calling Oakland the luckiest city since Hiroshima. When Simonton threatened to have baseball's antitrust exemption revoked, the owners responded with a hasty round of expansions. Kansas City was awarded an American League expansion team with the Royals. They were initially slated to begin playing in 1971, but the Senator was not willing to have Kansas City wait three years for another team and upped his threat again. The Royals and the Seattle Pilots began play in 1969. The owners complied, but while Kansas City was major league ready, Seattle was not, and its stadium problems affected profitability and ultimately forced the sale and move to Milwaukee after only one season as the Pilots. So now we got fresh place round face. The team's move to Oakland coincided with Blue Moon being called up to the bigs. He improved to a 16-10 and 10 record with a 2.45 ERA the season after the move. He had a no-hitter against the Baltimore Orioles. Even back then, it didn't seem too hard. But it was broken up by Davey Johnson's single, with two outs in the ninth on June 7th, 1968. Baltimore scored a run on three walks as Odom walked eight in the game. He finished third in the AL with 98 walks and also was named to his very first All-Star game in which he pitched two scoreless innings. Odom was dominant in his first half of the 69 season, going 14-3 and with a 2.41 ERA heading into the All-Star break. He also showed himself to be one of the league's better hitting pitchers as he went three for three with a home run and six RBIs against the Seattle Pilots on May 4th. He was named to his second consecutive all-star team, but was tagged for five runs in just a third of an inning as the National League cruised to a 9-3 victory that year. His numbers started to fall off considerably following the All-Star break, as he went one for three with a 4.9 ERA in the second half of the season. After finishing second to the Twins two years in a row in a newly realigned AL West, the Athletics finally won their division in 1971. Unfortunately, Odom did not get the opportunity to pitch in the postseason as they were swept by the Orioles in the 71 ALCS. On January 6, 1972, things took a weird turn for Odom. He was shot twice by a person trying to break into his neighbor's house while he was trying to stop the robbery. Officers said that Odom was shot twice, but was in good condition. Odom said in a telephone interview, quote, I'm really lucky. I should be out in three days and ready to report for spring training by February 23rd. Both shots that hit Odom just actually glanced them, one on his right side and one in the neck. Odom's wife saw a man break into the neighbor's house and called Blue, who was only two blocks away while working at a liquor store. Poor guy had won 10 games and played in two All-Star games, and he still needs to work just to make ends meet. 
Odom dashed into the house and confronted the man trying to rob it. The robber fired three times, hitting Blue Moon twice as he ran away, and unfortunately, he was never caught. Honestly, I'm going to say this right now. This dude is pretty badass. Get shot twice, once in the neck, and was like, I, I got to get out of this hospital. I got to go back to work. If you're an avid listener to this show, we both know that this story will take a turn soon. But the fact that Blue is a hardworking guy just looking to make a living by any means is pretty cool. In 1972, following the bullet holes in his neck and arm, Odom went 15 and 6 with an ERA of 2.5. In a solid rotation that included Catfish Hunter, who went 21 and 7 that year, Ken Holtzman, who went 19 and 11, and Vita Blue, who went 6 and in 10 but it was blue who had a breakthrough season in 1971 vita blue was actually in a money dispute with a's owner charlie finley and that's why he went six and ten blue held out missing much of the year and ended up with that record he didn't make the a's postseason starting rotation instead he pitched in relief in the 1972 world series versus the reds Vita Blue actually made four appearances, including a save in game one, a blown save in game four, and a loss in a spot start in game six. Despite the labor dispute, though, the A's would sail to their second consecutive division title in 1972. Now, Blue Moon would make his first postseason start, shutting out the Detroit Tigers, holding them to just three hits, in the second game of the 72 ALCS. Oakland took a 2-0 series lead. The Tigers came back to tie the series as Odom took the mound for game five of the ALCS. He held the Tigers to just one earned run in five innings. And Vita Blue pitched the final four innings as the A's beat the Tigers 2-1. Despite the fact both pitchers had great games and their team was heading to the World Series, a fight broke out between the two men after the game. Vita Blue was unhappy with the decision to come in in relief and he let his feelings be known. During the team's post-game celebration on October 12th, Vita Blue joked around with Blue Moon Onum, a lot of blues in this locker room, saying that he choked and needed to be rescued by him. At some point, the joking turned serious and nearly came to blows in the locker room. Oakland held a 2-0 game lead against the Cincinnati Reds in the 72 World Series as Blue Moon Odom faced Jack Billingham in Game 3. Odom had allowed just one hit and two walks while striking out 10 in six innings before giving up his first postseason earned run in the seventh inning. Unfortunately, Jack was more dominant as he pitched eight scoreless innings to lead the Cincinnati Reds to a 1-0 win. In Game 5, Odom was used as a pinch runner with the A's trailing 5-4 in the bottom of the ninth. With one out and Odom on third base, he tried to score after Reds second baseman Joe Morgan caught a pop fly in foul territory and was thrown out at home plate to end the ballgame. Odom and Billingham were again in a pitcher's duel in Game 7 of the World Series. 
this time with Odom leading 1-0 before both pitchers gave way to their bullpen. The A's won the game 3-2, giving the franchise their first World Series championship since moving to Oakland. For the postseason, Odom was 2-1 with an ERA of 0.71 in 18 strikeouts and 25 innings pitched. In 1973, Odom fell 5-12 with a 4.49 ERA. The A's would return to the postseason, but this time Odom was used in relief by Dick Williams during the 73 postseason. He made just one appearance in the 73 ALCS, pitching five innings and giving up just one earned run in their 6-0 loss to the Baltimore Orioles in Game 2. Odom made two appearances in the World Series against the Mets. In Game 2, he pitched two scoreless innings. Blue Moon entered game four of the series with only one out, two men on, and three runs already scored in the first inning. Odom got Don Hunt to ground into a double play to end the inning. He left the game in the fourth without giving up a run. However, Darrell Nose allowed both base runners he inherited from Odom to score. Still, the A's would win the 73 World Series, and Odom was now a back-to-back -back champion. Odom was used in relief in the 74 season, earning his only career save on August 30th against the Tigers. The A's once again faced the Baltimore Orioles in the ALCS, beating them in four games. Odom's only appearance came in their game one loss. Now, just before the start of the 74 World Series against the LA Dodgers, Odom and teammate Raleigh Fingers got into a fight in the A's locker room after Odom made a comment about Raleigh's wife. The incident lasted less than a minute. However, Raleigh Fingers required six stitches on his head and Odom sprayed his ankle and had a noticeable limp. Regardless of this injury though, Odom pitched a scoreless ninth inning in game two and earned the win in game five. Odom faced just one batter, Davey Lopes, in the fifth and final game of the World Series. Lopes grounded out in the seventh inning with a score tied 2-2. Two two. Joe Rudy led off the following inning with a home run to put Oakland up 3-2 and gave Odom the win in the third World Series title. Odom is now a back-to-back-to-back champ. Odom just made seven appearances for the A's in 1975 before a May 20th trade sent him to the Cleveland Indians for Dick Bossman and Jim Perry. Here's a fun fact for you. On July 19th, 1974, Bossman no-hit the Oakland A's team. He missed a rare perfect game due only to his only throwing error in the fourth inning, which gave the A's their lone base runner in a 4-0 Indians victory. A year later, he's now pitching for the team that he tried to no-hit. After just a month in Cleveland, Odom was traded again, this time to the Atlanta Braves for Rorick Harrison. Harrison was 20-23 and with an ERA of 4.45 in his career for Atlanta while he was dealt to the Indians during the 75 season for Blue Moon. Odom went 2-9, with a 7.22 ERA for his three clubs that year. Odom would begin the 76th season playing for the Atlanta Braves minor league club and did not see any major league games until a June 15th trade would send him to the Chicago White Sox for Pete Varney. In just his second start for the Sox on July 28th, Odom combined with reliever Francisco Barrios 
to pitch a no-hitter against his former team, the Oakland A's. Odom pitched the first five innings, while Barrios the last four in what would be his last big league victory. Francisco Barrios would die of a heart attack at the age of 28, most likely due to his excessive cocaine use. And Pete Barney actually grew up in Roxbury, Mass., for all you people listening in Boston. 1977, Odom pitched six games for Oakland's AAA team, the San Jose Missions, before he actually decided to retire. So a back-to-back-to-back World Series champion, a two-time All-Star, just time to hang it up. So you might be asking yourself right now, okay, so was that it? He got shot twice trying to save somebody's house from getting robbed and got into a couple of fist fights? Well, you obviously don't listen enough at IEP Radio. Major problems for Odom began when he was arrested May 24th, 1985, by Irving Police near the Xerox plant where he had worked quietly and effectively for six years. He was charged with two counts of selling a small amount of cocaine to a co-worker. Months later, the case still pending and Odom still unemployed, he snapped. He drank heavily one night, threatening his wife Gail, and then barricaded himself in his apartment for six hours. If you ask him, he doesn't even remember much about that night. But this episode was only the beginning of a long year of despair. The court case was delayed several times before he was finally tried and convicted. Blue Moon was sentenced to 90 days in jail, but before he served his time, he spent 42 days in an alcohol rehab center. With that being done, he served only 55 days in jail and was released on December 16, 1986. Moon and his wife struggled for months before Gail actually found work with the computer company in Tustin, while Blue Moon received steady invitations for public appearances and also started pa- painting houses. Attorney Stephen DeSale, who was representing Odom for almost no fee, persuaded a judge to let Odom serve the remainder of his five-year probation without supervision. Actually, it was a favorable report on him by the Orange County Probation Department that swayed the judge to grant Odom more freedom during his probation. One thing that surfaced along with his legal problems was his deep desire to bury the name Blue Moon, the nickname that he picked up in grade school that he never actually really liked. He never told the friends that he had met after ending his baseball career about the nickname or his past baseball accomplishments. But that has changed too. He is once again comfortable being Blue Moon, the ex-baseball player. He said, quote, at home, I want to be known as John, but now I know that out there before the public, I am still Blue Moon. And that's the way it should be, he said. Odom began collecting a $40,000 a year baseball pension in 1990 admits that he now is enjoying the benefits of being a former MLB player. Occasionally, he receives letters from fans, some who enclose old baseball cards of babyface Blue Moon that they want autographed and returned. Odom would say, quote, before I closed myself from the world, but now I'm going out and I'm meeting people. I have met so many good people. I really love it. His legal and emotional problems were equally trying on his wife, Gail. She too went without a job for months 
while trying to help her husband overcome his emotional depression. And Odom freely acknowledges that without her, I wouldn't have made it. Gail says, I've gotten him back to be himself. He feels good about himself. That's the important thing. He now actually likes the public. So like I said, this story really isn't a fall from grace. It's more of a story about how baseball players back in the day, especially African-American players, still had to work even after baseball in order to support their family. Now, John might have actually had problems, but he seems like he was a really nice guy nonetheless. So that's going to do it for John Blue Moon Odom. Thank you so much for listening. We got another card added to the collection at IAP Radio. Go ahead and check out past episodes of In a Pickle at IAPRadio.com. And while you're there, go ahead and go follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. All right. So thank you so much for listening. I'm Dave Houghton. This is In a Pickle, the show that is dedicated to the less glamorous side of baseball. And we will see you next time. Goodbye. Welcome back, everybody, to the Fenway Feed. For those of you who don't remember, way back in 2007, we existed on MySpace, where we gave you all the latest Red Sox scores and news. With the help of Dave at IAP, we hope to bring the feed back to the In a Pickle podcast every week to briefly get you caught up on everything Red Sox related. So let's get right into it. The Red Sox started their season against their longtime rivals, the New York Yankees, at Yankee Stadium this past Friday, April 8th. The season opener's pitching duel consisted of Boston's Nathan Eovaldi and New York's Garrett Cole squaring up against one another. The Sox started strong with a beautiful home run blast off the bat of Rafael Devers in the top of the first inning to score himself and Kike Hernandez for the team's introductory runs of the 2022 season. J.D. Martinez followed up with a line drive double to right field to score Xander Bogarts. And New York's Anthony Rizzo answered back in the bottom of the first with a two-run homer of his own, bringing Aaron Judge in to score with him, leaving it a 3-2 Boston lead going into the second inning. The game was quiet offensively until the bottom of the fourth when Giancarlo Stanton hit his first of what we can only assume to be many home runs, tying the game at three apiece. With Xander Bogots on base yet again, a ground ball single from Alex Verdugo scores another run in the top of the sixth, bringing the Sox back up 4-3. Moving on to the bottom of the eighth, DJ LeMahieu hit a homer to right center field off of the Sox' Garrett Whitlock, tying it 4-4. With neither team scoring in regulation, the game moved into extra innings. In the top of the tenth, Xander Bogarts hit a line drive single to score the Red Sox ghost runner Jonathan Aruz, leaving it 5-4. Yankees answered once again by scoring Marwin Gonzalez on a sack fly from Gleber Torres in the bottom of the tenth to tie it up. With the Red Sox scoreless in the top of the eleventh, Josh Donaldson scores a walk-off single, scoring Isaiah Kiner-Falefa to win the game. In the Sox and Yankees' second matchup, Pitchers Nick Pavetta and Luis Severino went up against each other in what would be a relatively quiet game for both offenses. Alex Verdugo hit a two-run homer to score himself and J.D. Martinez in the top of the second. The Yankees' Anthony Rizzo did the same in the bottom of the fourth to score himself and Josh Donaldson, tying it at two apiece. The last runs of the game were scored by none other than Giancarlo Stanton with a two-run homer, leaving the score at 4-2 Yankees to finish the game. 
In the third and final game of this series, with pitchers Tanner Houck and Jordan Montgomery on the mound, RBIs from J.D. Martinez and Christian Arroyo left the game at 2-0 in the first. Giancarlo Stanton brought the score up 2-1 with an RBI single in the third. Jonathan Aruz insulated the Red Sox lead with a sack fly in the fourth to score Christian Arroyo, leaving it 3-1 Red Sox in the fourth. The only other run scored was in the top of the sixth when Bobby Dalbeck hit a home run to right center field, bringing the score 4-3 where it would stay to earn the Sox their first win of the season, staving off a Yankees home opener sweep. On Monday, the Sox flew over to Detroit to play their first of a three-game series against the Tigers. In a relatively uneventful game with Michael Waka on the mound for the Sox and Matt Manning on for Detroit, the Sox went down early in the first with a sack fly by Miguel Cabrera bringing Detroit up 1-0. The only run scored by Boston was off the bat of J.D. Martinez in the fifth inning with a single-shot home run. Javier Baez capped off the Tigers scoring with a two-run homer in the eighth, Sox lose 3-1. On Tuesday, Boston continues its series against Detroit with Rich Hill on the mound facing Tyler Alexander with a 1 o'clock first pitch. That is all for today, folks. Once again, a big thanks to Dave at In a Pickle for having us. We'll see you soon, and as always, thanks for listening to The Fenway Feed.